Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning series. It, it seems like we have been doing this for the last 10 years, but it's, uh, it's really only not even a year. Uh, we're getting into the month of February in the midst of, uh, of this pandemic. A lot has happened, um, changes daily. And I think John will share some new information about uh, what the virus is doing, our strategy, our vaccination, uh, what's up in the, in the horizon. And uh, as he always does, will give us a sense of, uh, of optimism that we will get to, we will get to the, the end of this road. And I think it, it, it will come. So hang in there. I know this, this feels tough. It's the middle of the winter, very cold out there, uh, but uh, spring will come and summer will come and we'll get back to normality in due time. So just hang in there. That's my recommendation to all of you. Be not afraid, be not afraid, please. Uh, today we have, in addition to John, we have, uh, we have Kimberly Martini-Carvel from the, the Office of uh, Community Child Health, uh, which is a, just a tremendous uh, uh, part of the organization here at Connecticut Children's. And, uh, and, and she will give us a, a sense of, of uh, a program that, that Paul Dworkin started here many years ago that is really now a national program uh, for what we're known uh, all over the country and in fact all over the world and she will talk and how we can help young children in a COVID world. I think that's going to be very very important for all of you our pediatricians, our nurses, everyone who logs in from uh, all over the state. Uh, welcome to our colleagues from Danbury. I think some board members actually from Connecticut Children's are also joining either live or in podcast and, uh, and I, uh, I, I spoke to Skip Kodak who's, uh, who leads our uh, uh, our Lego operation here in Connecticut, and, and I, I understand, John, that, uh, that we will be invited to speak to the Lego Corporation directly about uh, specifics of COVID-19. So that's going to be kind of fun to have a little Lego. I, I, I'm not sure they're going to make a Lego of you, John, but maybe that's going to happen. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll post that to them. So for all of you, welcome. Let's begin our presentation with John, and then we'll hope we'll go with Kimberly, and then we'll have questions and answers at the end. Bye-bye. Take care. We'll see you in a bit. John? Thank you, Juan. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, the rest of New England who tunes in. Um, glad to have you. And uh, I always start off, um, thank you for what you do out there, whether you're a school nurse, a provider, a parent, a physician, nurse practitioner, thank you for what you do. We will be moving beyond this. You will not have these talks forever. Uh, next slide, please. So we are showing improvement in the United States trend. Um, we, are, we have capped out at around 300,000 cases a day, which is still unbelievable. And we're down in the 150, 170 range, maybe less some days. This is good um, and I think uh, is hopeful because if we can get this lower, open up our hospital beds and then roll out a lot of immunization, you could see we could be back the way we were over the summer, which was in a good spot. So, um, and then we can clean up with more immunization. Now there, there's some th thunderclouds about this, which are the mutant strains, which we'll talk about a little bit. But right now, today, the USA trend is showing some improvement. Next. Um, ditto on hospitalizations. Now, um, this is really important. As you're aware, um, many ICUs in California were full and the death rate shoots up as hospital capacity gets overwhelmed. The death rate shoots up from COVID that's happened over and over again. And the fact that we've bottomed out and are beginning to decline in number of hospitalizations, still an enormous over 100,000 beds taken up by a COVID-19 infected person who's ill. A remarkable number, but it's going down. Uh, I think this is really important and something to watch because it's gonna allow our medical system nationally not to be overwhelmed. And there's a lot of stuff that's not being cared for properly, cancer and heart disease and other things that we really need hospital and medical system capacity to manage. So uh, this is good news also, but again, I temper it with the worry that of the UK resurgence that was dominated by a more contagious strain, which is now in the United States. We worry that um, this could turn around and go up again and that's why getting needles into arms as fast as possible is a national task that we just have to do. Next. Um, death rate uh, lags, uh, obviously new cases, but um, it seems to be declining. Now it was at a remarkable 4,000 
deaths a day. Uh, it's declining a bit, uh, but I do think um, we are going to hit 500,000 shortly and maybe beyond that. So probably certainly beyond that. So again, a remarkable um, challenge in the United States um, in mortality from this. And I think as I watch the news and the flurry of things, um, getting our arms around this seems to be difficult for us as a country. And each one of these 500,000 people was a person, is a person, had a family, loved ones. And so I, I think this is going to reverberate for many years uh, after this, um, how we've managed this. Um, but that's where we are. The death rate does appear to be flattening. It's very important that the hospitals stay open without every ICU bed full. That'll help move this death rate down. Next. Um, and we're flattening in Connecticut. Um, this is, I would say, mostly good news. The daily case number appears to be declining in Connecticut. Um, you know, we had those two surges after the holidays. You can see that on the pink curves, but it does seem to be coming down now. And the daily reported deaths uh, leveled out. They peaked after the travel from the holidays and are coming down again. So we're gonna to need to watch this very closely in Connecticut. I, I wanna reiterate, uh, we have a boatload of community spread still, um, much, much more than we had over the summer where we were in very good shape. It's everyone's goal to get us back to where we were in the summer and then really follow up every case and immunize and, and conquer this. And we are not there yet. We have a lot of hard work to do in, in the next couple of months to get Connecticut and frankly, the rest of New England um, back to a more reasonable level that's manageable. Next. And this is Connecticut um, by town and every town except five towns is more than 15 cases per 100,000, some way more, you know, up in the 80s. Uh, and, but the test positivity, at least as I saw yesterday, has come down. It was around eight, nine percent. It's down to about five percent tests are positive. But, you know, you can see we have a global statewide problem. Uh, some towns in Litchfield, which are very underpopulated, have a lower than 15, uh, in fact, lower than five cases per 100,000. So some are doing pretty well. But um, in general, uh, every town has a lot of community spread right now. So we need to be very cognizant of that. Next. And Connecticut hospitals, I think I showed you this in a different graph. This one uh, I think is a more exact because it shows the actual number of beds taken and that's gone down in Connecticut. Very good news for us. Next. Now, um, the new cases in Connecticut, and this gets into the issue, I'm gonna show you some pediatric data uh, later. Um, this has moved into the younger population. So most of the cases we're seeing are in, um, this is not deaths, that's a different graph. I showed you that last week. These are new cases of COVID-19 uh, between 10 and 50, uh, 10 years old and 50. And that's where most of the cases are. Um, and so it's moved into a younger cohort um, and you'll, there's a lot of cases in elderly and a lot of the deaths I showed you last week from 50 to 80 are where most of the deaths are, but not all of them. There are people who are dying in their 40s as well, but most 50 and above. So um, this has moved into a younger age group and, and, and children as well, uh, much more so than in the first wave. Next. And Connecticut deaths, again, in a more exact way, you can see actual numbers per day are declining. Um, again, I think I want people to walk away saying uh, today uh, we are doing better in the state. We have a lot of work to do, um, but we have, we're doing better. And this is true across most of New England, Rhode Island, still challenged. But the death rate in Massachusetts, hospitalizations, et cetera, are similarly declining, but they're much higher in Massachusetts, but similarly going down. Next. So let's talk about hotspots. Um, Arizona, which was a hotspot a couple of months ago and sort of got it under control, um, is out of control again. I mean, these are the new cases per 100,000 by county. I mean, 166 uh, in, in, in one county in Arizona per 100,000. These are really high numbers. And so, uh, and there's a lot of mixed messaging in Arizona uh, in terms of leadership and uh, telling people what to do. It's confusing. They have very challenged in hospital beds right now and ICU beds. And so 
again, if you looked at the Connecticut numbers where maybe you were 30, 50 at the worst, 80 in one county and uh, 15, say in Litchfield, um, these are much, much worse than what we're seeing in New England and are incredibly challenging community spread. Next. And you can look at the hospitalizations in Arizona. It's severely challenging hospital capacity. I mean, you have over 4,000, maybe 5,000 people in the hospital from COVID. And um, although it's declining a little bit the last two weeks, uh, this is severely challenging the healthcare system in Arizona. Next. Now let's talk about pediatric data. Um, the American Hospital Association, the American Academy of beginning to collate thousands and thousands of uh, data about kids who've been sick with COVID. And um, it goes up to September. It's nothing newer than that, unfortunately. But what we're finding is that um, there's been about 270,000 children hospitalized as of September, but um, it's only around 1.8% uh, of those ill um, and COVID positive. So around 2% of children um, are hospitalized with COVID. So it's a low number, it's not zero. We all know that because we have beds filled with some kids, but it's, it's not what you see, uh, particularly for example, in the elderly, it's very different disease. We do not understand this yet. Next. And then similarly, um, the, uh, again, the Children's Hospital Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics have shown that um, if you're looking at mortality, and these are data now to January of 21 from 43 states, New York City, um, and you'll see that uh, all ages of deaths were in the hundreds of thousands cumulatively for, for a time period, child deaths a couple hundred, and it's giving around a 0.01% mortality rate if you're a child infected with COVID. And, um, that is a hundredfold less than the mortality rate in adults. It's um, a silver lining from this pandemic that child mortality remains low. We fundamentally do not understand um, the reasoning behind this. It's a key, I think, to understanding the disease better. It's good news for us, but I will also point out it's not zero. Uh, there have been a few hundred deaths from children, of children in the United States from this disease. Uh, but the overall mortality rate is 0.01%. It's very consistent. You can see the data were collected over many months. It's an extremely consistent mortality rate. So um, this is interesting. It's a blessing uh, uh, for the, during this pandemic, but also poorly understood. And we are going to need to understand this better. And it also um, is going to uh, dictate how we immunize. And I think one of the reasons the focus by the vaccine companies was initially not on children, is unlike some other illnesses where there are more children who die from the infection. In this one, it was much, much less. And so the focus was on adults and then down to 18 and 16 for the two vaccines. New data are be generating down to 12. Um, but that's the reasoning behind the pharma's focus on adults and not children for the initial vaccination wave. Next. All right, so what's new with this pathogen? There's a lot going on. I, I've, as usual, I've sort of surveyed the bucket and I've pulled out some things I think will be of interest. Next, please. So um, there are neurologic sequelae seen in uh, certain uh, individuals post COVID. It's well reported. And in this study, they looked at um, uh, the CSF and MRs of everyone who had some sort of encephalopathy from SARS-CoV-2. And what they found was that there was not replicating virus in the brain at that point. Um, maybe there was earlier, but at the point where they began to show neurologic disease, but, but there were cytokine disturbances. And you can see they did proteomic analysis and there's interferon gamma and MCP2 and uh, MMP10. These are all pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it looks like post-COVID for a small number of individuals, again, we do not understand why yet, there is an, a, a neuroinflammatory response that damages the brain and causes a, 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 a neuropathy of some sort, a neuropathology of some sort. 
So we have more to learn about this. Now, clearly the fact that you, you lose sense of taste and smell shows that it's getting in to the initial portion of the brain, the olfactory bulb, for example. But in certain individuals, there appears to be a very robust inflammatory response within the brain that's damaging. So I, I wanted to share that, it, but it's not replicating virus. Um, and again, it's the immune response that seems to be the problem. Next. Um, now there's a no more immunology going on. So why do people get severe COVID and some don't? And people are we're trying to figure this out. In this study, they, they looked at mild disease versus severe disease, and they looked at functional T cells in those people. Seemed like a very relatively simple study. They looked at interferon gamma made by functional T cells. And it turns out that the mild disease patients have a lot of functional T cells that are making interferon gamma and killing the virus. Um, but people who are really, really sick don't. Now, the problem with the study is, do they not because they're just very sick and their body is so beaten down that they can't mount the T cell response or is the T cell response that's not very good um, because causing the more severe disease. We don't know that, but it's a fascinating differential. And again, showing that certain people uh, do not respond um, immunologically uh, the way they need to, to fight off this virus properly. So um, very interesting data, stay tuned. This is from last week. I, there's a lot of work going on to try to understand this better, but the, I thought these were very interesting studies. Next. Uh, okay, the mutants, the mutants. So at the moment, there are two we're concerned about, the UK strain, uh, which is B117, um, which has better binding to the ACE2 receptor. And in addition to that, because of that is more contagious. Uh, that virus is in the United States now, and we're worried uh, that we may see a, a, a resurgence in community spread as this virus takes over, becomes the dominant strain here. Again, the urgency to immunize first and the vaccines on um, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, immunity appears to take care of this virus. The neutralizing antibodies do just fine against the UK strain um, B117. Next. However, um, in the South African strain, um, there is some reduction in neutralizing antibody. And what I wanna do is I'll, the best way to see this uh, would be um, the bottom graphs and the blue line E484K is the South African strain. And the blue line shows a reduction in the ability of plasma or uh, uh, blood um, or antibodies post immunization as well to neutralize the virus. It's not zero, but it's a, about a tenfold reduction. It's on a log scale. So it's, it's going to be an issue, um, but the vaccine still generates neutralizing antibody, but in a reduced amount. And you can see that also in the 484 in the little boxes, um, you see it goes down representing the difference between neutralization of wild type WT and the E484 mutant South African strain. It's a reduction in the ability of the neutralizing antibodies to, to be against that virus. So um, it's not zero, it's just a reduction. Next. Now, uh, there's a, a new data as well on monoclonal therapy. And, and, and uh, in our opinion, I think Juan would agree with me on this, the best role for the monoclonals is prevention and really early therapy. Uh, you just got PCR positive, you're a very high risk person, the monoclonals appear to prevent severe disease. I think they're also gonna work for people who won't have a good response to the vaccine, giving them monoclonals every few months, I believe will also prevent them from getting infection. However, there's ongoing uh, therapy, uh, therapeutics, and in this one, they combined um, the well-known, I call it the BAM monoclonal, with the Lilly monoclonal and mild to moderate COVID. It was a multi-centered trial. Nobody had severe disease. Next. And they found some uh, improvement, and the blue line, the blue arrow, um, are uh, the combined um, monoclonals together, and this is viral load and the combined monoclonals together reduced viral load and the, the clinical work from this study is just being analyzed, but it looks like the combined monoclonal for mild disease uh, may have some efficacy. But I think once you're sick, uh, these monoclonals are not gonna help. Next. Uh, second vaccine dose updates. Uh, most of you probably know this uh, because of supply chain issues 
let's get that first dose in. And the second dose can be administered within six weeks after the first dose. Um, and almost everyone feels the booster response will be fine if you have to do that. It's not ideal. You'd prefer three days for Pfizer, three weeks for Pfizer and four weeks for Moderna. But if you can't, get that first dose in and we can give the second for up to 42 days after the first dose. I think this is gonna help us get the vaccine out in the community uh, and, uh, and hopefully keep up with the second doses over several weeks after the first dose. Next. Now, I, want to, I do wanna talk about um, the media and, um, and uh, things that as providers and frankly, as citizens, we really need to be aware of. There's a very sophisticated anti-vaccine disinformation um, uh, going on across the country. Uh, I think we need to be aware of it. Um, this comes from the InfoWars uh, website. I, I cruise through these websites. Uh, there's a lot of vaccine misinformation. And it's very clever because they twist a fact and make you think something because of it. Let me show you. So the, the facts are Merck and company have a, a number of COVID vaccines. They did not appear to be very immunogenic. They didn't elicit the robust antibody response that you see from Moderna and from Pfizer. And in fact, they really weren't as good as natural infection. Remember, Moderna and Pfizer actually are, are, are better in some ways than natural infection and the neutralizing antibody titers, more consistent for people. So yeah, the vaccines didn't work very well because they were not as good. And that's how you judge a vaccine, right? Whether it's any good. So then what they say is the World Health Organization has issued new guidance um, on, uh, well, I'm sorry, the, the top one first says, it's more effective to get the virus and recover. Well, that's not exactly what Merck said. They don't want you to get natural virus. They just said their vaccine isn't gonna make it. So, so this makes you think, wow, okay, well, the vaccines are no good. I, I need to get the virus and recover. Herd immunity, that's how you do it, which is untrue. So um, they've twisted a fact with the headline that makes you think it's just gonna be better to get the virus and get over with it. Not correct. And the next um, byline, the World Health Organization has issued new guidance on Moderna COVID-19 vaccine include worrying advice that pregnant women should not get the jab unless they are at high risk of exposure. Now, the advice is not worrying at all. It's been very transparent. We did not give it to pregnant women, so we have no data. Please discuss it with your OB doctor about the risk and benefit of getting the vaccine because pregnant women end up in the ICU more than women who are not pregnant. That's what the official guidance is. So the fact of the matter is it's not worrying, it's very transparent. And so again, you're injecting fear into your discussion of the vaccine. I think it's very important. And this is much more sophisticated than it was four weeks ago. Next. Now this um, was on Fox News website. Uh, and again, I think very important. So there's a bill being introduced from, for privacy for your vaccine. And you know, I think fine, it's HIPAA. And what I would have done, I would say, look, I'm introducing a bill to preserve your privacy so more people get immunized so they're not worried about it. So I'm gonna make sure that when you go get your shot, it's gonna be fine, HIPAA will be protected and we want more and more people to get immunized and this will help. That's what I would do, right? If this is what you believe in. But this is what was said. I'm extremely concerned that the Biden administration working closely with totalitarian regimes across our nation will leverage this historic vaccine in order to dismantle people's privacy yet again. All Americans should be able to choose to take this vaccine with no fear of government or public-private partnership reprisals and monitoring. So, you know, I'm, I'm a citizen who's not particularly scientifically oriented, I'm a business person or whatever, and I read this and I don't know what to do right? Oh my God, they're going to take my private information. There'll be reprisals. I'm not going to get immunized. So, so on the one hand, you're talking historic vaccine. On the other hand, you're introducing fear, which will reduce the immunization numbers in the United States. We need to be aware this is going on. Uh, you know, it's sad. Uh, but again, the way, if you believe in privacy and that's what you don't want to, I'm all for it. Then just say, look, I'm going to help more and more people get immunized because we want more privacy instead of there's this, this fear now. And I guess, um, you know, it is what it is, but we all need to be aware this is going on when we talk to our patients and focus on the facts, focus on the facts. Next. And um, here's a very interesting thing. This came from uh, actually the Lancet, pretty reputable 
organization. And what they found, they actually looked at anti-vaccine groups on Facebook, the 31 million followers on Facebook and 17 million anti-vaccine people join anti-vaccine groups on YouTube. And it's been calculated the anti-vaccine movement uh, realizes um, about $980 million in advertising revenue for Facebook and Instagram from advertising for 38 million followers of anti-vaccine accounts. And, and so, you know, um, there's money being generated from this on our social platforms, social media platforms. And again, I, I don't have the answer, but these are all things we need to understand um, and, and try to see, are there ways that to counter this? Do we need lots of Facebook groups about how vaccines have saved lives and changed the world so children live to adulthood when they didn't used to a hundred years ago. So these are all very important things and uh, but I want everyone to be aware this is very active right now. Our goal is gonna to need to be to get 80% of Americans immunized and there's active uh, disinformation trying to discourage that. We have to be able to deal with that. Next. So, where are we? The good, the bad, and the weird. And uh, Dr. Salazar, it's in French today. Le bon, la brute, and le single. Um, the epidemic in the United States is flattening. This is good news. In fact, it's going down a little bit. New cases, good news. The new national immunization strategy has begun. It's bumpy. We have short supply of vaccine. Um, uh, it's trying to ramp up and we're trying to get a more consistent way of giving the vaccine across the states, but it's a little bumpy right now. The more contagious UK strain is in Connecticut, actually, it's in the United States. Um, we're going to need to watch very closely and determine whether that causes uh, a resurgence. Right now, not. But if it takes over uh, and becomes the dominant strain, it might. The South African 484, it's actually a double mutant, um, uh, may partially evade current vaccines. However, it's not zero. It was a tenfold reduction in neutralizing effect. And there's still a lot of neutralizing antibodies. So most people feel the vaccine will probably protect. However, Moderna is already creating a new vaccine version that will also include the, the, the mutants. And the weird, uh, political attacks on vaccine administration and disinformation on vaccine efficacy are being pushed at the same time the value of the vaccine is praised. Very confusing. These mixed signals may reduce the numbers of people willing to be vaccinated and prolong the pandemic. It's gonna be our job in our commu every community to make sure our citizens have the facts. And I believe when they do have the facts, most will choose to be immunized. Thanks for your attention today. And um, I look forward to our next talk. Thank you, uh, John. And vous êtes les bons, les bons. You're the good, for sure. Um, the next speaker is Kimberly Martini Carvel. Uh, she is, uh, has been with Connecticut Children since 2015 initially as the uh, Help Me Grow National Center Executive Director, which she remains in that capacity. And as of December 2018, the Associate Director for the Office for Community and Child Health. And then she will tell us some really fascinating information and uh, uh, hopefully some ideas of how we can keep our children be healthy in the COVID world. So Kimberly, take it on. Great, thank you, Dr. Schreiber and, and Dr. Salazar. I am really feeling privileged to be able to follow Dr. Um, Schreiber's um, Ask the Expert session. I have been attending um, pretty much every Friday morning. And I have to say as a professional, they're fabulous, but as a mother, they are super helpful. So thank you so much, Connecticut Children's, Dr. Schreiber and Salazar, and um, Dr. Liz Anderson and everybody for putting this together. So I get the opportunity today um, to talk about a little the impact on young children and their caregivers, both nationally, um, and also then very specifically to Connecticut and really offer up some opportunities to support um, those caregivers and their, their children um, as we are in this very different changed pandemic world. Next slide. So impact of COVID-19 on the health and well-being of families, even though as Dr. Um, Schreiber was just talking about, we are seeing a lower rate of infection with COVID-19 in children and in very young children. Um, so the direct health implications might not be as strong as they are for say the elderly, or now we're hearing um, kind of more my age and the middle age <laughs> um, and down to 10. 
there is significant indirect impacts um, on young children, um, specifically around what we call the social determinants of health. Um, and we are seeing uh, throughout the country um, and actually worldwide, really direct, sustained, profound impact on young children's developmental trajectories. Um, next slide. So I wanted to little, put a little bit of a perspective on what is being seen and compare it to kind of the pre-COVID world. Um, and so pre-COVID national picture, we were looking at like 35 million people, including 11 million children living in a food insecure household. Since the onset of COVID-19 pandemic, food insecurity has drastically increased. You've probably seen this all over the news. So one to six children in 2019 were food insecure. And right now we know in the data that we have, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but it's showing two to five mothers with children, um, two and under are currently food insecure in this country. Next slide. 12 million of the 23 million children younger than age five who need childcare are in some form of childcare in 2019. So approximately 50% of those who need um, childcare were currently in childcare or early care and education. Um, as of the impact of the pandemic, two out of five early care and education programs have or will close. And this is from a survey that was done and this was to cover from March, 2020 to February, 2021. So we can anticipate that this number is going to be even higher um, when we start to look forward after February, 2021. Interesting also half of all the childcare and education programs that will close are minority owned. Um, they're unable to sustain their business for six to 12 months um, post the start of this pandemic. And that was a, um, a statistic taken or a fact collected in June of 2020. So we're looking at already a disproportionate impact on um, our families and um, providers of color due to the COVID-19 pandemic in early childhood education and care. Next slide. Safe and stable housing. So pre-COVID, um, the statistic I could find in 2017 was the most recent, 39% of all US households with children had one or more of three housing problems, physically inadequate housing, crowded housing, or a housing cost burden greater than 30% of household income. Um, looking at now COVID impacted and the most recent data that we could find, um, of the 110 million Americans living in rental households, 20% were at risk of eviction by September 30th, 2020. 27% um, were at risk of eviction uh, as of December 2020, I'm sorry. September 2020 was the first one. December 2020, we go to 27%. And it's projected by March 2021, we were at 31% of US households um, are at risk of eviction. So again, not a one-to-one -one statistic correlation, but we already had a high level of stress and concern uh, around young children and their caregivers in safe and stable housing pre-COVID. And now we're looking like even now with COVID impact, we're having an increase and it's really focused this statistic on eviction, not even looking at um, housing insecurity. Next slide. Social emotional health of young children. Um, we already knew that increased and sustained caregiver stress correlated with um, a reduction in optimal child health and development outcomes impacting brain development, the parent-child dyadic relationship. And now we see the National Institute of Health reporting um, drastic increase in parents reporting their own mental health difficulties, as well as a 41% increase in young children behavioral problems since the onset of the pandemic. I wanted to provide this group with um, a little bit of real-time resources to look at some of the statistics um, that are coming out um, around the impacts on children's health and development. The University of Oregon, led by a team led by Dr. Phil Fisher, um, you can go to www.uorapidresponse.com has been conducting a survey with parents of young children, five and under a national sample since April, 2020. Um, and there's a dashboard that's live every week that's updated that has a number of metrics of looking at um, both caregiver health and well-being, and also their young children's correlating health and well-being or 
lack of health of well-being if they're currently experiencing a number of those things that I am talking about now. I looked this morning and on the dashboard they're reporting 52% of children with with families that are currently experiencing financial hardship are also facing and distributing emotion or displaying emotional distress. Next slide. So impact of racism on the social, emotional and physical health of, of families here in this country. I think COVID um, has allowed us to shine a spotlight on the discrepancies um, between the safety net systems and the supports that are there um, for some and definitely not there for those who are black, indigenous and, and families of color. Um, in pre-COVID in 2019, the AAP released their policy statement that really talked about the impact of racism on child and adolescent health, declared it a public health issue and something that needed to be looked at and addressed and thought of when you're talking about the health and well-being of young children or children in general. Um, we are seeing with COVID, as I said, just that differential direct and indirect impact on minority children um, of a a study that was done, a quick one, at the Children's National Hospital in the District of Columbia, a small sample of about 1,500 children, and this was um, data that was published in September 2020, we are seeing a rate of positivity in those children of COVID-19 of the sample of 1,500, 7.3% of the white young children were testing positive, 30% of the black young children and 46.4% of the Hispanic young children. Again, this was a small sample taken at the Children's National Hospital in the District of Columbia. We can see though that as kind of a proxy measure if we start to look and blow that up globally or nationally for direct and indirect impact of COVID-19. Next slide. So parental concern about their young child's development. The National Survey on Children's Health, um, really going back to 2012, because it was the last time that I could pull this data, because this question was asked in this way in that survey, 26% of parents, children ages four months to five years were concerned about their young child's development. Um, if you look at that and do some of the math, you're looking at 5.9 million young children. Um, the National Institute of Health is now saying that um, we have between 35 to 42%, depending on where you are throughout this country and some of the other um, contributing factors, um, 35 to 42% of parents with young children are currently having concerns about their young child's development. So approximately 9 million children in this country. So we also know that parents' concerns regarding their children's development is over 90% predictive of an actual developmental concern, delay, or diagnosis. Therefore, we're really looking like an explosion happening of young children that are currently experiencing an insult to their developmental trajectory, health, and well-being. Next slide. So um, I tried to paint a little bit of a global pick, not global, national picture here in this country. Um, and now I thought I would zone in a little bit on just the implications in Connecticut and for the young children and families in Connecticut. Next slide. So this data has been pulled from a myriad of places that I'm, I'm happy to post uh, in the slide will be the, um, sorry references going forward. But I wanted to make sure to just get these out here and to, to get them on a slide. So impact of COVID-19 on Connecticut's youngest citizens. So between 11 to 17% of Connecticut residents were reportedly food insecure in 2020. If you look, if we do some of the math kind of on the back of a napkin, we're looking at about 392,000 to 607,000 children. Um, sorry, individuals of that, a high number of children were reported to be food insecure. The Center for American Progress estimates Connecticut will lose greater than 40,000 early care and learning slots um, by the time the pandemic is over and we are back to kind of standard of practice and care in ECE. Data Haven out of New Haven actually reports in 2020, more than 21% of black and Latino adults, young adults, and those with children reported being unable to pay for housing. Um, the Connecticut Children's Collaborative reports that the COVID-19 pandemic has swiftly and substantially affected the social and emotional health of Connecticut's children, especially those experiencing multiple hardships. Many young children are experiencing widespread disruptions in their daily life and routines. 
And then we have the Journal of Pediatrics reporting that before the pandemic, 37% of all children less than five years of age in the United States were estimated to be at risk of not achieving their developmental potential. That statistic is estimated to be at 43% now and post pandemic. If we think about that and apply it to um, our current state or um, census here in Connecticut, 37% um, is looking at 67,276 young children, five years of age and younger, to 78,187 Connecticut children under the age of five um, who are looking at not achieving their full developmental potential. Next slide. So a little bit about the impacts of COVID on early childhood systems across the country. Um, as Dr. Salazar and Dr. Well, Dr. Schreiber had talked about, I sit as the executive director of the Help Me Grow National Center, which leads um, a wide national network of um, Help Me Grow affiliates in currently 30 states in over 111 regions throughout this country. And those um, affiliates are serving as kind of a, a nucleus uh, providing and organizing a comprehensive system of care for young children. Next slide. Next slide. So all of those affiliates that I talked about that I get the privilege of helping to lead at the National Center are implementing the Help Me Grow system model. The Help Me Grow system model is a collection of four core components and three um, structural requirements. This is a model that was uh, designed um, and created by Dr. Paul Dworkin, who sits at Connecticut Children's um, in 1998, um, and really was uh, born about some of the assumptions that we were seeing of impacts on young children at that time really being identified too late with concerns or delays that if we had identified them earlier, we would have been able to focus on prevention and promotion activities that could have actually closed the gap developmentally in their trajectory. Um, this program started off here, as I said, in Connecticut, it was in the greater Hartford area, expanded statewide um, in 19, oh, in 2000, I'm sorry, in 2000, and then has been replicated now in 30 states and 111 regions throughout this country. Next slide. So having this vast network, it was a little bit of a real-time learning laboratory where we could collect some data about the implications being seen at the system level of around young children, their families, and their providers. Um, and so part of this model, one of those core components is a centralized access point that specializes in child development. Um, and so we saw throughout the network, um, this data was collected um, from uh, June, or the end, no, I'm sorry, from May, 2020 um, through June, 2020, we saw a 43% reported increase of calls during the COVID pandemic. And we also saw what was interesting that the increase of calls that were occurring um, were happening matched in, in parallel with the surge of COVID-19 as it swept across the country. Next slide. Um, we saw so much increase um, in our centralized access points that we turned to some of our big national funders and said, how can we leverage this network and also this system and infrastructure that's in so many communities um, to answer the emergency needs of families with young children? Um, some of what we were hearing was um, at that centralized access point, how do I safely dilute my baby's formula? I don't have enough. She is hungry. I can't afford to get any more. I'm an essential worker and need childcare for my toddler. Her grandparents used to watch her four days a week. I can't afford full-time childcare. Can you help me? I've lost my job. I can't feed my 18 month old. I'm scared and need help. Where can I get help? Um, and so when we were starting to in real time collect really the demand um, and the need for what we're calling emergency basic baby and toddler needs. As I said, we turned to our funders and we really thought about leveraging the model and also this network to be an infrastructure to meet those um, baby basic needs that weren't currently being able to meet by the community and by the, the, um, the nation and the federal government. Next slide. Oops, sorry, my screen just went out. Um, so family concerns reported to help um, me grow centralized access points. This is just looking at and showing the explosion in basic needs um, 
calls that were coming into our centralized access point lines and the need to find a way to meet those needs because the current organizations that were meeting those needs were either not open or not operating the way they used to, plus the demand far exceeded the supply. Um, this included coming together and thinking about how do we work with formula companies on distribution, setting up diaper banks where there weren't diaper banks before and connecting to the National Diaper Bank Network. This was a ton of work that was happening grassroots at a community, a state, and then us, the National Center, were trying to be able to coordinate and facilitate that so that it could happen at scale where it was needed. Next slide. So, Interesting enough, um, thank you, Dr. Schreiber, for talking about really some of the misinformation and false information that's coming out around, or that is being shared and perpetuated um, about the vaccine. We are seeing in real time, as I was talking about the increase in basic needs that were coming into our centralized access point and our Help Me Grow affiliates across the country's reporting. We were also, and we are currently hearing um, a lot about questions and concerns and vaccine hesitancy of um, caregivers and asking questions about really of our centralized access point and help me grow providers. Um, you know, is what can we do? Is it safe? Um, and we have been using and our affiliates um, and their communities to really serve as that learning lab to test language, especially with Black, Indigenous, people of color caregivers. Um, who are experiencing or expressing concern or vaccine hesitancy, um, talking to them about really how this is just another way in which you can care for your family and your young children, um, and to be really talking and tying COVID-19 vaccination um, to how we talk about flu vaccination and really to communicate the importance of caring for, that this is just another way in which you can continue to care for your family and community. We've seen some really good positive results from testing some of those languages. I hope I can come back and share what we've found to be working the most in the different regions throughout the country. Other ways in which Help Me Grow systems are supporting public health officials and vaccinations with their COVID-19 responses. Diverted Help Me Grow staff, inclusive of care coordinators to support vaccination sites. Um, supporting the marketing efforts to families and the community of where to go get vaccinated, how to sign up for the COVID vaccine. Um, we have a body of a network of trusted um, parent, uh, trusted parent, I was going to say peers, but they're really just trusted professionals um, that really center child development and therefore are being turned to um, in times with question or need or concern. And they happen to serve a real vital way for us to in real time think about how we can really deploy our assets and resources in a way that meets the need of this community. We also are training Help Me Grow Centralized Access Point staff to answer questions from families related to the vaccine or to COVID. Um, and then we have added vaccine sites um, all over the country to the Help Me Grow resource directory. Next slide. So here in Connecticut, um, Help Me Grow Connecticut is the centralized access point is Child Development Info Line, 1-800-505-7000. There you can reach and be connected to a child development specialist who, like I said previously in the slides, can help support a family and a young child and being able to be connected to the resources that they need. I'm talking about access to open and available childcare and early childhood education slots, um, food pantries, connection to housing supports and resources and referrals when there is a developmental behavioral concern. Next slide. Child Development Info Line in Connecticut um, is grounded in a number of evidence-based practices, measures and metrics. Um, and some of them here are on the screen. They are also serve as really a central portal to connect families and providers to a number of supports and resources, especially in this digital time and world where we are seeing a reduction in children attending well child visits and a reduction in children receiving actually the vaccinations needed in those first two years of life. Um, we have also here in Connecticut um, been able to ramp up a few digital or application-based supports for families with young children, them being Sparkler, 
uh, Bright by Text and Vroom. Um, a number of providers, uh, maybe some of you here today, are actually leveraging those as ways to keep in communication and contact and really support the parent in their child's um, developmental promotion and really engagement and stress reduction um, in the household as we are all trying to serve as both teacher, parents, uh, public health official um, in this COVID world. Next slide. I really appreciate so much your time and attention today and just really getting to see both one, um, just the impacts that are happening, both direct and indirect to young children and their caregivers, but also here in Connecticut, what we're seeing is those um, impacts on social determinants of life and ways in which we can um, connect families to those resources in real time to support them. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we have a number of questions. We'll go right to them. And if we can't get to them, we'll answer them and, uh, through, the, through the website. Uh, first question for John, uh, since hotspots are at the border, which is fluid and about to become more, um, so as well as the known Brazilian variant, it is not surprising that Arizona would be so affected. Uh, would it make sense to close borders? I guess travel, John, can you comment about travel, travel policies regarding uh, variant strains and how can we protect the uh, the, the strains for coming into the country? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in terms of Arizona, it's mostly the non-UK strain there. It's the regular old um, COVID. So I, I don't think that uh, the new strains are what's causing Arizona's problem. It's uh, the lack of consistent public health measures. I think, um, you know, already the new administration has blocked travel from South Africa, which would make sense. And um, to me, you know, the UK strain's already here. Um, the South African strain uh, a little bit, and that's the one that I would focus on in terms of travel. I, I would want the South African strain not to come into the United States more, and I would want to track down where it is in the United States and very quickly try to quarantine those people and prevent spread of that strain, because that's the one where there's reduced vaccine efficacy. You know, global travel bans, um, you know, the, the COVID's already everywhere. Uh, I would, you know, my, it just, I'm giving my opinion, I think it makes sense to test people before they get on a plane. I think it makes sense if there's a South African strain in that country and it's dominating not to have travel from that country. So I would have a more selective approach um, on that. John, also for you is the, just a comment on um, how does the COVID-19 mortality data compared to what we would we'd usually see with influenza mortality in children specifically? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It depends on the year, right? Every year is a little bit different depending which flu is circulating, but you know, it's pretty similar to influenza. Um, if you look at adults, it's a hundredfold difference. So um, it's really an interesting problem. We do not understand, but for some seasons, it's pretty similar to influenza. There are other seasons where influenza is a bit worse uh, than that. So it depends on the year. And, and likewise, comments on, the, on influenza season, not, not, we're not seeing it this year. What happened? I think masking and uh, physical distancing and a household staying in their household is, has broken the back of other respiratory viruses this season. You know, this is something for us to learn. Maybe, you know, when there's a bad RSV and influenza outbreak in the future, we'll, have, we'll be better able to, to stop it, actually. But right now, we're, it's a blessing. Uh, we're, we're not seeing much. I think there have been a couple of influenza cases, uh, but yeah, not The much. numbers for last year were 13,000 cases for the state of Connecticut. Uh, I think the total number that they have been, has been reported is in the it's less than 100. Yeah, it's and, amazing. Uh, one death last, uh, last year, there were many deaths. Um, comment, uh, Kimberly, this is for you. Any comments on resources for families with older children and teens? Um, Yes, um, and I actually would suggest um, reaching out to, to 211. Um, there is just a hub there, both online, um, but also with um, care providers there that can help to um, connect to resources and services. I would also say, um, you know, my area of knowledge expertise is in, is in early childhood and a lot of the um, offerings and supports and resources in Connecticut that are connected to the Office of Early Childhood, Department of Social Services for families with young children. But there is similar, um, there is similar homes or organizational entities that are really focused on health and well-being um, of kids older than eight. Um, so uh, I would say to, to make sure to check um, your Department of Social Services, your Department of Public Health, and, and to reach out to 211. 
John, uh, Bethnan had asked about the uh, the effect of coronavirus infection in neonates, uh, one to two months. Uh, any comment on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And remarkably, um, young babies don't seem to get very ill with COVID. Now, there are a few. Um, so first off, it doesn't appear to get across the placenta, which is great news. Unlike Zika, which is damages the fetus, this coronavirus does not seem to get across the placenta. There's a case report or so, but very unusual. So that's good news. Even if the mom's COVID positive, the baby's most likely not going to have uh, COVID coming out of the birth canal, can acquire it after that, of course. And they don't seem to get that sick. So again, another very poorly understood um, uh, manifestation of this particular virus where viruses often in the neonatal age group tend to be more severe. That is not true here. So um, it's, a good, it's good news, but it's poorly understood. Great, and uh, we'll be loading a, a PDF uh, article from the British Medical Journal that looks at coronavirus and neonates as systematic review, just to show you that we're re real-time answers here. Beth, you'll have a PDF of, of a great article. Uh, there are a couple of questions uh, from, from Dr. Lehman, very good question. For those of us who've been fully immunized with a vaccine, do we have to follow the usual CDC quarantine rules? What do you think, John? Uh, the answer is for now, yes. And the reason is, is we don't know whether you can, even if you're immunized, whether you can acquire subclinical infection and transmit. So if you could, that would be bad. You know, you think you're fine and you, you, get, you acquire it, you don't know you have it, you can transmit it to an unimmunized high-risk person. So until we reach herd immunity, 80%, 75% of the population is vaccinated, we are gonna need, as an immunized person, you're gonna need to maintain all of those rules because we don't know about transmission yet. Now, if there are new data showing the vaccine prevents subclinical infection and you don't transmit, that's great, but we don't have those data yet. So right now we maintain all precautions, even if you're immunized. Uh, and um, there are a lot of ID questions today. So the, uh, from Richard Segul, vaccine supply is of enormous importance. So the two current vaccines, can their production supply easily be scaled up? What are the main factors limiting production of, of the mRNA vaccines? You know, actually, uh, Tony Fauci was on CNN the other night and addressed this. And, and as Tony does in this elegant, uh, very, very nice way. And he said, look, you know, the, the vaccines are not like an auto plant where you can, you can reactivate an auto plant, move some machinery around and, and get going. Uh, to create a safe, you know, it has to be endotoxin free. You have to have all of these purification measures. You can't just open a factory. So what you have to do is you have to work with the existing factories that are able to manufacture sterile, you know, high technology vaccines and ramp them up. So they're, they're going 24 seven and that's what's happening. But, you know, the defense, uh, uh, Act isn't going to help because you can't just open a new factory. It'll take you months to create a factory that's able to manufacture the RNA vaccines at the highest level possible that we demand for human administration. So, however, I will say the supply chain, I mean, there's a lot more vaccine coming in. It's just a matter of logistics as it comes through getting it out. It's not going to be as fast as we would like for the vaccine doses, but it is coming. Great. Um, Kimberly, last question for you is, can you just, uh, or, or statement, can you remind us again, if, if families want to reach out to us, what is the easiest way to get to OCCH and the resources that you have through Help Me Grow? So the easiest way for you to access, or really the way to access Help Me Grow Connecticut, because OCCH is the home of the National Center coordinating the national network, the Help Me Grow affiliate that Connecticut operates um, is, um, through that, through CDI, Child Development Invaline, and the phone number that I gave, the 1-800 number, that'll directly take you to a child development specialist who can connect and coordinate you to those resources. Juan, I, I do wanna answer uh, one question about the uh, disinformation. Um, and uh, my point about the WHO article is, WHO did recommend, you know, let's hold off with pregnant women unless you're high risk or you're working in healthcare because we have no data. That's sort of what they said, what we've been saying. But the um, media inserted that word worrisome. So that casts doubt, that casts fear. And that was my point about that. How you take the facts and then put in a couple of words so that, oh, well, you know, I better not do that. As opposed to, okay, there are no data. This is what the uh, organization is bringing. Let me talk to my doctor and determine if I'm high risk enough. So I did want to clarify that point, Juan. Thank you. One, one last question for you, John, uh, from, from Ken Spiegelman. Uh, and Ken, by the way, happy birthday. I think you're, you turned 25 or 30, I can't remember. Uh, we're definitely seeing more children of all ages diagnosed with COVID. Could you comment on appropriate follow-up for these cases? Office, how often 
beyond the return to sport guidelines, which are presently being revised and updated by our cardiology colleagues here at Connecticut Children's. Yeah, I mean, the, the sports advice, I'm going to defer to our cardiology colleagues because I think there'll be a, a very um, specific intranet pathway uh, for kids who've been severely ill from COVID who are athletes. So I'm going to defer to that. I, I believe that uh, will be is already on or will be on soon. I think children with mild cases of COVID who were not very sick deserve um, the normal follow-up you'd have for any respiratory illness. They don't seem to have problems, most of them. However, parents should be advised that if they get fevers that are persistent and a rash and have these, these inflammatory type symptoms, they need to seek medical attention right away because a small, small number will get missy. And we're gonna see more missy because more and more children are infected. It's not because, I don't think it's because of the strain variation of the virus, it's because of just larger numbers of kids and a certain very small number will move on to have this inflammatory syndrome. So I would warn parents about that, but otherwise for mild cases, I don't think there needs to be much follow-up. Great, thank you, John. And thank you uh, all, I don't know, it was something like 240 people who joined today. It keeps uh, This it continues to be a very popular venue for all of you, I appreciate it. There was a comment about doing a series on mental health, which we will take into account. I think that's a very important element of discussion, we're seeing a, 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 a tremendous increase in kids coming into the hospital because of mental health issues. So we will make sure we take that into account. Next Tuesday, we have Dr. Michelle McKee connecting disaster readiness principles to daily patient care. She's the head of our emergency uh, medicine division and the emergency department, and she is trained in disaster preparedness. So please log in on Tuesday. And then we have a week from today, uh, we have uh, John with his uh, weekly update and Dr. Stephen Rogers We'll touch upon this topic, youth suicide, recognition, care, and prevention. Please tune in. This is an enormously important topic for all of you to be part of it. So enjoy your weekend. Be safe. Keep warm. It's going to be very cold, and we'll see you again on Tuesday and Friday. Bye-bye.